If you would turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. I'll read the scripture and then uh, and then we'll pray. If you would, if you can stand, stand. If you don't want to, that's fine too. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus. Articulate the Father's heart through my voice and let the Holy Spirit breathe new life to us, opening our ears to hear the message of God. Amen. You may be seated. This morning I'm going to speak to you from the letter Paul wrote to the Galatians. In the letter that that, that we have read from, the letter was written after some of the elders Paul appointed in the churches established in Galatia wrote to tell him of a troubling issue. Some had come through after Paul, called Judaizers, and they started to agitate the churches by claiming they weren't really Christian converts. They hadn't done what needed to be done because they hadn't been circumcised. They told these Christians in Galatia that true religion required a code of conduct, the law of Moses specifically. And without the boundaries of the law, no one really could be saved, they were saying. And in fact, they further said that Paul was an unreliable preacher since he hadn't told them the whole story. Paul learned everything secondhand, but he didn't really know what he was doing. Now, This may sound a little bit familiar. If you remember when we talked about 2 Corinthians, he sort of had the same trouble, right? People were trying to discredit him in Corinth as well. And they were saying he wasn't really a good preacher. He wasn't really who he needed to be to tell them the gospel. And here Paul finds himself again having to defend who he is and what he's doing. So Paul writes this impassioned letter to refute that teaching. And like I said, I could have just read you the letter because it's a beautiful, beautiful letter that tells us everything we need to know about how to live the Christian faith. He's angry at what is happening in Galatia. So what he says has a feel of, uh, of passion and depth that you don't get in most other letters. So he says, look, these legalists that have started to make you desert your faith aren't doing it because of God. They're doing it 
for a very human reason and one that doesn't have anything to do with the gospel and who is saved and who is not. They're not right to tell you who's in and who's out. They don't know what they're talking about. So throughout the whole letter up to this point, Paul has um, defended what he taught them. And he has told them several things. He's told them, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. In fact, I wish these idiots that keep telling you that you have to be circumcised would go the whole way and just emasculate themselves altogether. Uh, That's pretty hardcore stuff. Uh, And uh, further to that, he says, look, let me tell you what it is that it looks like when you're a Christian. This is what the law of Christ is. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things. And he says, and against these things there is no law. He says there's no law in the law of Moses. There's no law in the law of men. None of those things are written against. Paul tells them all of these things and he says, this is what you have to do. This, not that. Don't worry about getting your foreskin cut off. Don't worry about getting circumcised. Worry about living what you've been taught. And when Paul gets to the end of this letter, he writes this last, these last few verses himself. He says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised, and the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. I I can just sort of see Paul as he's sort of dictating this letter to the scribe, right? He's pacing back and forth, telling them, it is for freedom you have been set free. Don't let someone put a yoke of slavery on you again. And the scribe is writing furiously, and finally Paul gets to the end, and he just grabs the pen, and he starts to write. Aside from the fact that Paul wanted to verify that all of this content was from him all the way through, and verify it by writing out the last few verses. Paul has some big ideas here in this last bit that he really wants to drive home to the Galatians. He's been reminding the Galatians up to this point that their own experiences are not consistent with the message that the Judaizers have brought and that the burden the Judaizers is trying to put on them is a slavish one, one they'll never be able to live up to. He doesn't give them carte blanche in the letter to live without moral balance, though. Indeed, the thrust of the message in the preceding sections describe a morality that surpasses the law of Moses because it is the work of the Holy Spirit embedded in the believer that creates the restraint on sin. So now, as Paul charges forward, he lays out very directly what the true purpose of the Judaizers is. To claim Christianity, but demonstrate complicity with the law. They want to be accepted by the Jewish leaders and escape persecution 
But they also want to have what Jesus has to offer too. So they're trying to play both sides of the coin. They were likely Jewish Christians, trying to show Jewish leaders they are devoted to the law by demonstrating that the Gentile Christians are required to follow the law too. But the worst part is their insincerity about forcing Mosaic law on these Gentiles because they were unsuccessful in these attempts to demonstrate complicity with the Jews. It, it's sort of an interesting thing that they were living with. They had this Jewish leadership that was controlling the church and some of the things that happened in the temple and all of that. And then they had this Christian faith that they really wanted to follow because they could see that it meant something and it changed things. But they wanted to be able to do that in a way that didn't rock the boat. And I think that's why we get this information sent to us. The reason why we have this book in our canon is because these are some of the same things we still face. Now, granted, we don't have Jewish leaders who might persecute us. We don't have to worry about someone asking us to live under the law to be circumcised, as it were, once we became Christians. But there are uh, several different things that we can take from this passage that help us to build our relationship with Christ, that help us be stronger Christians. Paul finishes this letter by talking about two different ways of addressing the cross and how the cross impacts the lives of those who take those views. He says that there are two different ways that the Galatians can live. One, they can avoid the cross. And two, they can boast in the cross. Let's take a look at how the problem confronted them and then how it matters to us. First, avoiding the cross, which Paul accuses the Judaizers of doing in a very direct way. They are doing everything in their power to live as though the cross was no big deal, as though it has had no direct impact on their lives. They are trying to live two lives, one in the world, where they dodge persecution, and one in Christ, where they dodge sin. In both cases, they are missing the point. The cross wasn't a marker that reflects some greater reason to legalize our lives. It was the game changer. The point at which the law became fulfilled. The Mosaic law was the pointer to Christ. It was the direction that led people to try righteousness only to see how they failed. Christ gave the way for righteousness to actually be possible. Not by using the right dishes or eating the right foods but by living out the love and grace that were the underlying purpose of the law in the first place. How do we avoid the cross? It's a challenging question in our current age because I think most of us would say that the cross is even more offensive, more stigmatized, more blatantly divisive today than it was in Paul's day. To the point that avoiding the cross is sometimes described as the best way to advance its message. 
The problem is that without the cross, we don't have anything the world needs. We don't have a resolution to the problem of sin. From the beginning, it's been evident that human beings are incapable of righteousness. In Romans, Paul outlines this very clearly. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Romans 8, 1-4. And in Galatians, the same letter, chapter 2, verses 15-21, to 21, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. When we avoid the cross, we are living in sin. Period. Without the cross, we have nothing. We cannot live in Christ without the cross. The solution to sin is the cross, and when we ignore its power, when we pretend it is not important, we leave behind Christianity. Without the cross, there is no resurrection. And without the resurrection, there is no hope. And without our hope, what's the point? If we aren't willing to embrace the cross and all it stands for, we cannot be Christians. There is no other way. The Judaizers weren't really interested in boasting in anything other than their own success. Even though their emphasis was godly living, what they really wanted was to be safe. They wanted to turn the Gentiles into a prize that they could win, not followers of Jesus. They focused on the externals, the things that others could see, rather than the things that truly mattered. That is a real danger for us, too. What are the external things that we focus on, the things that distract us from being focused on Jesus? Do we care too much about how others perceive us? Do we want to keep our lives compartmentalized, Our faith in this box, our family in this box, our work in this box, and in so doing be good people, nice folks who don't rock the boat? Do we want to align ourselves with those in power who claim they are Christ followers but show no fruit in that? Do we want to condemn those in power and align ourselves with those who see nothing as sin? We can be Republicans or Democrats before we are Christians in this day and age. 
And if so, do we really have faith if it just makes us behave or vote the right way and doesn't boast in the cross of Christ? Paul says that just being good or having right ideas isn't sufficient. It happens because we are living in the Spirit, but it happens without our intentions or abilities. The Holy Spirit guides us to a life that is fruitful because that's what happens when we live out our faith. We don't live good lives to earn our salvation. We turn our hearts into repositories for God's grace and holiness springs from that deposit. So how do we boast in the cross? Is it by sticking a fish on the back of our bumper sticker? On the back of our car? Putting a cross bumper sticker on the back of our car? Wearing a cross necklace? Wearing t-shirts? Posting Facebook memes that tell everybody that we pray? I don't think so. Paul tells us that we have to be crucified to the world and the world must be crucified to us. And then we must live according to the inward manifestation of our faith as a new creation. We have to be obedient to what Christ has called us to do and what has Christ called us to do. The one commandment that he gave us. Love our neighbors. Love God. There have been monks and nuns that have taken that verse to the extreme and live a very separatist existence. The Amish, too, live a very different-looking life. When I was a kid, I used to think it would be way easier to be a Christian in an Amish or a cloistered community. Because after all, the things that we have to avoid living in the world must be much less available. It's a lot harder to do uh, spend all of your time on Facebook if you don't have technology, for example. But I wonder how much those lifestyles are really boasting in the cross. If the externals are so important that they are so strictly prescribed, then perhaps what looks like a devoted life isn't. It's just escapism. So then how do we live so that we are crucified to the world and the world to us? Paul gives us this instruction earlier in Galatians 2. In chapter 6, verses 22 to 24, he tells us exactly what it means. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. I always thought that when Paul says that there's no law prohibiting the fruit of the Spirit, he was saying that we could be assured that men's laws wouldn't ever stop us from living them out. But in the greater context of the letter, we know that what he's actually saying here is that the law of Moses doesn't prohibit these things. In fact, the law of Moses actually calls us to these things. And the law of Christ makes them possible. The law of Christ expects them. And the means for getting to the law of Christ is being crucified to the sinful nature that acts that drives us to act in contradiction to the fruit of the Spirit. 
Paul didn't live segregated from the world around him. He lived in it, pointing to the cross at every opportunity. And the expectation he levels here is that every Christian should do the same. Pointing to the gospel of Christ at every chance, even as we live among sinners and non-believers. And that brings us to the second point, that we must live as new creations. Paul expands on this in Ephesians 2. In 4, 23, he says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Our new self is in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In Philippians, he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. I can say this here because you guys are a small crowd, but that word is actually skabala in the Greek, and that means poop. He says, I consider everything else poop, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul is telling us about how he is a work in progress and how he continues to become more like Christ as he matures in his faith. And how is this work contrasted with the points he makes about being justified in faith? In the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed at her effort, through her work. Not because we are trying to be something other than what God has called us, remade us to be. We can't be new creations without the Holy Spirit. That work is what changes our desires. We wouldn't even want to be righteous if it weren't for God's work on our behalf. And that brings me to the last point about boasting in the cross. When the rubber meets the road, we will encounter resistance. Paul says he bears on his body the marks of Jesus, which is to say that by continuing to preach the cross, he has been persecuted. He has been beaten and left for dead, stoned, chased, imprisoned, narrowly escaped, and this was only one missionary journey. Paul knows what boasting about the cross costs because he has borne some of that misery. The Galatians too have suffered, 
Paul mentions it in, chap- in chapter 3, verse 4. Have you suffered so much for nothing? There is no point at which Paul assumes that Christianity comes without cost. Before Jesus was crucified, he himself indicated that the path behind him would be treacherous. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. When Paul talks about bearing the mark of Jesus, it's really a twofold proclamation. He bears the scars from his persecution, but he also declares himself a slave of Christ. The Romans commonly branded their slaves, and sometimes their soldiers as a means of keeping track of them. You could identify a slave or soldier and who they belonged to by a distinctive brand they wore on their forehead. Paul is a known Christian, and he wants to be known that way, whether by bodily scars or other means. He intends to boast only in Christ. Are we so different from Paul? Was he somehow better than us at that? I don't think so. Christians all carry the requirement to be Christ-like, to boast in the cross. And as we move through our week, whether going to school or going to work or whatever we do, our responsibilities are no different than Paul's. We are not called to be external Christians who avoid the cross. We are called to boast only in the cross and to live as though that is the only thing that matters. I'll ask you to take out your blue sheets. And as we have done every week in this series, we will talk about what it means to say that the love of God is found in every page of Scripture. What does it mean to say God loves? To create us, to form us from the dust. To let us fail, to let us choose our own way over God's. To let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. To provide a rescue, a way back through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. To show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. To show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. To send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. To see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. To raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like Jesus. To want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. To still let us choose our own destiny. 
to promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead, and final judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world. Beloved, God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week, most tangibly. As we gather at this table, the son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him.